Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I've never been to Albuquerque until this weekend, and it's really beautiful, and it's really been an enjoyable time. It's been great that Brooke and I have got to meet so many of you and just enjoy not only your church fellowship, but also everything about this area. It may help you to know a little bit about me. So I grew up in Oklahoma, spent most all of my life there. I have two Christian parents. I have an older sister who's a Christian a brother-in-law who's a Christian. And so from the beginning, my parents were wonderful in just preaching the gospel to us and telling us. Uh, They were young adults when they became Christians. And so they wanted to make sure that everything that they were pouring into us was actually Christ and him crucified and him raised from the dead. I became a Christian at a young age um, in a non-dramatic way. And I'm thankful for the Lord for that. But that caused a little bit of kind of internal struggle as I continued to grow up and continue to go to school. At least in the South, if you're a part of a church and you're a Christian, during the summertime you go to church camp of any kind. If you go to a school, there are things like FCA or Campus Crusade or other things that you involve yourself with other Christians. And there's always moments at camp or in clubs or in groups where people are telling their testimonies to other people. And and I learned at a young age that I didn't feel that my testimony was actually that awesome. You know, I went to Good News Club. I heard the gospel. I knew that I was a sinner. And the Lord saved me and I repented of my sins and believed in him. Now at camp, you know, a guy falls out of a helicopter 100 feet above and repents in the beliefs and then crash lands on a pillow. <laughs> or someone falls out of a truck and right before he hits the ground, the Lord saves him right there. Or in the middle of a football game, one guy said, I actually understood a sermon from that past weekend. So all of these amazing stories of Christ saving people placed up against mine, I was like, I don't know if mine's that awesome. As junior high and high school went on, our, our, the church that I grew up in had really a, a great youth pastor. And I was talking with him kind of about this issue that I had with myself. And I was saying, yeah, it's just, I keep looking for that kind of extra oomph in my own testimony. It was great. He, he was calm, swirled his milkshake, looked at me and said, I think the problem is that you are thinking really highly of your testimony about yourself. And you're not thinking enough about what the God of the universe did in your life. Change the way I talk. I think about other people who don't know the gospel. Because a testimony within me is not what I've done or how I've responded or what club or camp or family that I was a part of. My testimony is that the God of the universe saved me in spite of my sin. The the section of scripture that we're going to be looking in. Acts 4 has this amazing account where Peter and John are put before a high council and they're basically told, who are you and what are you doing and why should we care? And their response is giving a testimony, not necessarily about themselves, though they do give a small account about what they're doing, but their testimony more than anything instructs us. And I pray that it instructs you that their testimony is about God on high reigning and ruling over everything. So if you have a copy of God's word, I want to encourage you to turn it to Acts 4. We'll be slowly plodding through this chapter of scripture. And what I hope that we're going to see this morning is what you all have been slowly seeing in your study through Acts. And the proclaimed word coming at you through Acts is that 
as Christ has ascended into heaven, powered as people by the spirit, he is now building his church on people who are giving testimony to his glory. So let's look just in the first couple of verses, Acts 4, the word of the Lord says to us, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had already heard the word believed And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So just in the beginning, we see that Paul or that Peter and John are continuing what we would have left off in chapter three, where they are preaching a sermon just after healing someone. And people obviously are looking at that in wonder. It'll, It'll say later in this chapter that everyone basically knew this guy. Everyone knew that he wasn't what he now was. And so they were marveling at what these two apostles, followers of Jesus were were doing. And so the response of Peter and John was just to preach to them. And they both were preaching. Peter gets a lot of credit here, but it says that they were both preaching to the crowd and the masses. And that greatly annoyed the powers that be. And it says there in the text, why does it annoy them? Because they were proclaiming the resurrection from the dead. These Sadducees, the people that gathered around them and arrested them, these Sadducees were annoyed. Now these guys, they believed in the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all those that we try to breeze past when we try to read through the Bible in a year. They looked at that and they go, yeah, that's great. And they were missing the whole point of as the canon was unfolding, it was giving this great hope that one person would come, die for the sins of God's people and be raised from the grave. But not only that, that these people who put their trust in the Messiah would also at the end rise with the Lord. And they looked at that and they were like, no. Okay, so they were annoyed by him. Jesus said that this would be the case. It was accounted for in Luke 20. There they came to him, some Sadducees, those who deny the resurrection. So they arrested them and brought them into what looks like a court, but they couldn't try him yet because it was nighttime. And their rule followers, even though they don't like these people, and they wanted to do things to them that these people didn't want done to themselves. And they're like, okay, great. We're gonna wait for the next day and your trial will be in the morning. You have to imagine, just pausing there, you have to imagine what Peter and John must be thinking. Peter himself, given multiple chances to to believe and confess who God was, now has been, been given the spirit and now has been given boldness and proclaims it. And it seems like this movement of the Messiah that was happening in him is really taking effect. And it doesn't seem but one day goes by and all of a sudden I'm arrested. You know, this is the guy who swings for the fences and on his way to first trips and falls. The anxiety that must overflow in their hearts that night as they wait for the next day. Many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. If you're just plainly reading through the Bible, you might look at that part, verse four and go, that seems like a random insight. Like why wouldn't that come in chapter three? It seems like that's out of place. But what was really out of place here is actually that these guys got arrested because what was happening was not just 70, not just hundreds, but now thousands and thousands. And even as these people are preaching now about the healing that took place, more thousands came to know the Lord. The the message of the gospel 
though it looks like other things are coming in, it's actually the message of the gospel that's going out. So even as they were being arrested, thousands are being brought to an understanding of the Lord's righteousness and the Lord saving them. So the next day comes and what looks like tons and tons of people, maybe more upwards to 100 if you count the the number of people who are part of the Sanhedrin formally, so scores of people, but then it has tons of others there. If you look at Acts 4 verse 5, on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. You can imagine the tension that is already happening. Most of us like breakfast time quiet, you know, maybe tea or coffee, food, or just the kids are still asleep. That's why we wake up early, something. And already many, many people were gathering around. Rulers, elders, scribes, Annas, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all circling around them. The the emotion there, it's like they're ready to pounce. In fact, the, the structure of this text says, it seems like all of them seem to be asking at once a question that's gonna come. Peter and John are about to be prosecuted for what they've done. And that should ring a bell in our own minds. That, that looks and feels and, and recalls something. You think back to Matthew 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus. And they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So Jesus doing all these miracles and healing people and calling people to confess from their own sins and believe in him. Now these apostles are taking up that mantle and asking people to believe in Jesus there and they get the same slow but surely persecution that our savior would get. Jesus was also brought to what looks like the same kind of counsel and asked about his own power. Matthew 21 verse 23. And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? We'll hear the response of the apostles here in a second. But, but Jesus' response was gonna be, is going to be different than what we hear from the apostles. So Jesus, kind of faced with the same issue, actually receives that question and turns it back on the people who answer. So, so in a great rabbi answering mode he he hears the question turns it back on them basically in a way to say hey no one questions my authority no no one questions what I'm doing here while at the same time doing what we all wish we could do anytime one of us are asked a question like why didn't you clean your room what why isn't your room clean you know we, we want to trump someone with another question. So, so Jesus kind of turns everything back on them. And the apostles here are asked the same kind of question. So Jesus, when asked the question, speaks about himself. And when the apostles here are asked a question, they speak on behalf of Jesus. And, and you and I, when even asked questions about what we believe, why we come here on a Sunday morning, what is unique about your life? Why do you act a certain way? We're supposed to answer in the same way that these apostles do, turning all those affections towards who Christ was. Not that, well, I'm really awesome. You know, I'm the guy with an amazing testimony. No, it's, it's actually something inside of me that's different. So the question here is in verse seven, and they had set them in the midst 
The onlookers are amazing. You can imagine as you guys are kind of spread out in elevation and circling around. If I was here in the front of you and you all were asking a question, by what power or by what name did you do this? By what name? Basically meaning by whose authority? Who are you? In part, how, how dare you? These guys are looking for political influence in their time. And here this growing mass of people who aren't worshiping like anyone else. They're not taking a part in what these people are doing. Now they're talking about one God who's sovereign over everything. And he's healing people. By what authority are you doing this? Then here we see the apostles answer. I don't know about you, but I love movies. Part of the reason why I love movies um, is because there's always that moment in a movie where someone is faced with a trial or faced with opposition and just says the exact awesome thing at the exact awesome moment. You know, someone, I was talking with someone yesterday and all of a sudden I just said, yeah, Independence Day is like one of my favorite movies of all time. And part of why Independence Day is one of my favorite movies is of course, we beat the aliens. You know, how great is that? But second, when faced with the world crashing down with everything outside the universe coming on, the, the fictional president gets up and just says the most amazing speech of all time. And a lot of us look at that and be like, I, I want that. You know, I want to look at my kid when he's disobeying me and just nail him right there to where he will, he will do everything I tell him. Or I, I, I sit in a class and I want to receive a, a calculus question and go, oh, have you ever considered the volume of a sphere? And people are like, I haven't. That's amazing. <laughs> tell me more. There's always this moment, and I refer to it as that mic drop moment, where you just say everything you want to say, and you just drop the mic and leave, because no one else can say anything. So here in our text, they ask him, Peter, by whose authority are you doing this? Look at verse 8. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man standing before you is well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Top that, you know. That, no one's gonna play the Oscar music when that guy's talking. Imagine the silence there. I just wanna take a couple of moments and kind of bring up four things from from this amazing speech by Peter. The first one is, it says that Peter was filled by the Holy Spirit. Filled by the Holy Spirit. Just amazingly in our time, controversial phrase, filled by the Spirit, what does that mean? Now I come come from a part of the country and near where I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's like a hotbed of people misusing their desire for the spirit, what, what looks like being filled by the spirit by them means rolling around on the ground and speaking illogical things, or even in some cases, barking like a dog because, because saying what Jesus said actually isn't good enough. So I, I just need to kind of say weird things all of a sudden. 
Being filled by the Spirit might mean doing something better than you could ever think to do. I finally went through that school zone and didn't speed. Glory to God on the highest. Here it says he is filled with the Spirit. It was instructed by a guy named James Boyce who says in Acts, all throughout Acts, when people are filled with the Spirit, they always speak about Jesus. When Peter here says that he is filled with the Spirit, what does he do? He doesn't talk about his life. He doesn't say, look at the amazing things that I did. He doesn't say, I stand before you six foot tall, benching 900 pounds, run a 4240. No, he says, the glories of Christ are ever before them. You know, in other parts of the New Testament, it talks about being filled with the Spirit and, and that causes us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Just a natural reaction when we're filled with the Spirit. We sing something. You guys are a really good singing church. I hope you're told that a lot. I know that because there was a moment, I think in the second song, where I was just feeling it with great gusto and there was that pause right before the next line started and I just went for it and no one else did. And I could... <laughs> I could feel the shame, but shame on you. I was filled with the Spirit. Just this reaction of, of the Lord. I, I, I even sang the wrong word. Just yes. And here Peter quotes different parts of the Bible to them, obviously singing, at least in part, a, a psalm that we're going to see later. So he was filled with the Spirit. Second, the man is healed by Jesus Christ, he claims. He says he's healed by Jesus Christ, but he also, Peter can't miss this chance. I love Peter as a character. He's the first one in the boat. He's the first one on the water. He's the first one to make a fool of himself, but he's first, first, first. At this moment in a trial filled by everyone, he says, this man is healed by Christ and you killed him. And that wasn't good enough. The Lord raised him from the dead. And you know what? He's healed. So chew on that, man. So this man is healed by Jesus Christ. I hope we don't miss the amazing miracle that happens there. Everyone knew this man to be lame. My, my body is slowly breaking down bit by bit. You know, running is now jogging and kind of walking. Maybe at an incline when I'm really feeling it, but mostly in level cases. And over time, we all know people who towards the end of their life, they just can't operate physically like they used to. And here this man has been that way for his whole life. His muscle structure doesn't know how to walk. He can't stand. He, he can't react to things. person in their wheelchair their entire life, all of a sudden they're going to start doing things that people who in the Olympics do. And the Lord heals him. And he stands before these people. And it freaks these guys out. Because that is an authority that they now look in the eye and go, we got to squash this. So the man is healed by Jesus Christ. Number three in this speech, Jesus here is called the stone that was rejected. Jesus is claimed by Peter to be the stone that was rejected. He's recalling from Psalm 118, which we read at the beginning of the service, where Jesus, amongst all other stones that people are hoping in, it's actually Jesus who is thrown aside by sinners. It's Jesus, the Son of God, eternally has been rejected every time we sin because we are trying to act like our own saviors. But actually, the Father says that, that this stone, 
even the ones that we rejected, is actually the cornerstone of everything that now makes sense. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a cornerstone. It's just a stone that's on a corner of a building. You're welcome. So the cornerstone, they, they lay that first and then they build the rest of the building around that. And Jesus here in our lives, in eternity, from eternity past, before everything, on and through and by him, everything else was created. And only through him, anyone else can be saved. And Peter here is claiming that, that this Jesus who healed this man is actually the stone that you, the builders, you, the political influencers, you, the rulers and the elders, and you, Annas and Caiaphas. Yeah, I remember you guys. You guys rejected him. And here this man stands well. Anyone who knows how to use this cross-reference are, are so fed by pointing back to Psalm 18. And we all go to Psalm 18 in, in the 20s and we go, yeah, he's quoting from Psalms. And you might even think sarcastically, that's ah, really cute. The guy went to Bible drill and he knows the Psalms and goes back to 118. But there's a little bit more within the Psalm. Just a couple of other verses. Verse five, Psalm 118, verse five. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. Peter, Calling the psalm, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. Number six, verse six, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Here he's gonna stand in front of man and proclaim the glories of Christ. Verse nine, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. It'd be so easy for Peter to now again deny the Christ and say, ah, we just had a good day. Uh, you know, we took a risk and we said some nice things. They did essential oils on this guy and now he stands before you well. We use them. That's not a personal offense. So, you know, allergies, etc. So here he is calling on the Lord and claiming that it's the Lord who saved this man. The very stone that you, the builders, rejected. Just continuing this mic drop in front of him. And then lastly in this speech, he says that salvation is in no one else. Peter had been bold indeed and had come full circle from what we know about Peter in the Gospels. They asked for the name in whom his authority rested and he answered their question directly. It was the name and the power of Jesus that he directed the charges at. Peter here goes from someone who denies he's friends with Jesus to now boldly standing but from everyone who can bring pain on him and is a witness to Christ's resurrection, but claims also not only to heal people, but not by himself, but by the power of Jesus. But it's not just that Jesus is a powerful God, but it's by him that anyone can only be saved. Nothing else in the world can help you. Nothing else in the world can save you. It's only by Jesus. And at that time, that is an amazing claim. It might just be that a thousand, couple thousand people in the world would believe that. In this city, like 80 something thousand people at that time, it's just a small percentage. And he's claiming only in Jesus can everyone be saved. Here, Jesus is building his church in glimpses of acts by spirit empowered confessors of Christ. Their testimony is actually Christ. Their boldness is actually God's power shining through them. And their purpose is they're called 
Now pillars and other chapter or other books of the Bible, pillars and buttresses of truth standing on this cornerstone proclaiming the gospel. The gospel that they're proclaiming is the one that saves sinners. So here are two people redeemed by the Holy Spirit, justified and declared righteous through Christ's death and resurrection, standing before men who hate God and say there is salvation in no one else but the Lord. You know, surely there are glimpses in your life, if you're not a Christian, where you're just naturally aiming to, to bring value and purpose to who you are. A job, a girlfriend, a friend, fantasy football, something that makes you feel, I'm doing it, I'm important. And you place so much of your trust in those things. But the reality is that, that those things that you're placing your trust in, they're, they're completely meaningless to who Christ is. Not only that, actually just our daily actions and natural desires and what the Bible calls our fleshly inclinations actually put us against who God is. Um, when I was in high school, I played football and we played this one team, just really quick story, played this one team who beat us by 48 points in the first half. We thought we were pretty hot stuff rolling in there and just got squashed. Your sins, your iniquities actually separate you from God. And as you keep finding purpose in those iniquities, in those sins, you are still separated from God. You can't earn your way. So the Bible here, what, what Peter actually and John actually proclaimed a chapter earlier was that you actually need to turn from your sins and actually place trust not in what you normally do, good parents, good kid, good worker, all those things. Don't trust in that. Trust in the Lord to save you from your sins. And the Lord does that by taking place of where you should have been on the cross. The gospel account of where Jesus dies on the cross, that's actually where I should be. You know, my testimony of not feeling so hot about myself in my sin, I should have been nailed to that cross, but Christ was there for me. And by his power, he seeks me out, saves me to himself. And all he says is turn from things that actually separate you from God. I wanna jump on that boat so fast because the one that I'm standing in is sinking. So here he's proclaiming that in no other name can people be saved. One of the things I love about the book of Acts is, is just the characters of Peter and Paul. These guys are amazing, roaming around, proclaiming the gospel of Christ, being powered by the Spirit. And for chapters and chapters and chapters, and even books that these guys would write later, give testimony about God and his love for his people. Do you remember back in school when a question would be asked and you were not gonna raise your hand? Let some other fool get this problem wrong. When was the Declaration of Independence written? Not me. Why was that? I think any time we're asked something, we naturally, our inclination is naturally we want to hide behind something. Not because we're afraid of having the right or wrong answer, but because all of a sudden in class when people are asking questions and you go, yeah, I know when the Declaration of Independence was written, everyone's like, Phoom, look at that fool. I can't wait. Oh, he got it. Okay. I'm coming back though. We don't want people looking at us. We don't want people 
buying in or looking at our lives. We have this natural desire to kind of come back. I, I had to do six-hour announcements in high school my senior year. Didn't like it at all, but I was nominated by the class. You get up there and you say, uh, the softball game is at four and uh, there's probably a snow day tomorrow. Like it's pointless, you know, but then I know that people are out there listening to me and I don't like that at all. If you shared Christ today, the fear is not maybe necessarily that you might get it wrong, but the fear is that now you, you have to talk to people and people are actually listening to you talk about your own testimony. Talk, talk about how you view Christ. Now they're asking you questions about everything in your life. Compare that to Peter here. Why was Peter so powerful in speech? Later we'll see, not because of his intellect. He probably wasn't that important looking. But what gives him this gusto? The word said that it's because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the word says that's by the power of Christ that he can have so much boldness. And how did he receive Christ? By Christ's love. So out of Christ's love does he now have God's spirit and God's spirit is giving him this boldness that he can talk to people. He was remembering as he was saying to these people the love that God had for him. Anytime that we feel love from someone else, it puts a little bit of pep in our step. Now, I remember going to prom and just walking into that dance hall like, yeah, I have a person here that wants to be here with me. This is great. On the wedding day, different person that I went to prom with on the wedding day, watch, watching Brooke come down that aisle, I knew the whole time for what felt like 5,000 feet, she actually, this is happening. She likes me. She's what, even closer. Yes, I'm going to say those vows because she is here. Too often you and I forget about Christ's love in our lives. People might ask us about what we believe, about what we're doing, why do we do certain things, what is our life about? And we forget that Christ himself loved us, the savior of the world, the ruler and reigner of all things loves you. We forget who Christ is. We forget Christ's work. We forget all the power that we're having. A recent, recent part of a book that I read an amazing short tale of a, of a theologian who on, on the latter part of his life was now caring for his wife who had Alzheimer's. So you can imagine the memories that they share together, the passages of you know, systematic theology that she would have studied with him and put up with him and whatever. Now he's in the position of, of caring for her as she's losing the memories that were so present in her life. Many of you probably have family members who are just like that. And the hardest thing is that you're seeing them forget things that you know that they cherish. He said the hardest part of this was that his wife was really worried and really scared consistently that she would forget who Christ is. She would forget who Jesus is. And he looked, he said that he would look at her continually and he would say, what's not important is that you remember Christ. But what's important is that Christ remembers you. Christ knows you. That is a power that we can live with. That is, gives us the ability to speak with boldness. Do you speak about Jesus the way that he has spoken about you? On the judgment day, the Father's gonna look at you and he's gonna say, those are mine. 
In Christ, you are filled with the Spirit. In Christ, you are completely healed from the iniquities of your sins. In Christ, you will be resurrected at the end. In Christ, the Bible calls you pillars of upholding the truth. In Christ, you find salvation in no one else. And in Christ, you are known by a loving Father. By what power and by what authority do you do this? Christ, are you kidding me? It makes more sense what Peter is doing here. And the council here quickly is astonished. Acts 4, 13. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were an educated common men, they were astonished and they received and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside him, they had nothing to say in opposition. This is, this is like the worst way that you can have a battle royale with someone. You get up there and you say your thing, you mic drop, you give everything you've got and they look at you and they go, well, you're dumb. <laughs> it's clear who won. How were they able to speak in such astonishing way? Jesus told them what would happen. The helper will come in John 15. In Acts 1, you'll receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So they say something that all these elders and rulers and people who knew them looked at them and go, that is something that we're freaking out about. So they take time in verse 15. When they had commanded them to leave the council, so they go away for a little bit, they conferred with one another, they, they gather around like a, like a jury might meet after a trial and go, okay, now what are we gonna do with these people? That was an amazing case. You know, how do we doubt that guy? Verse 16, what shall we do with these men for that a notable sign has been performed, meaning that person has been healed through them is evident to all the inhabitants, not just of this court, not just of this neighborhood, but in all of Jerusalem, we can't deny it. But they think of a threat. Verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in this name. It's laughable because of what God is doing here. God is building his church on spirit-empowered confessors. Good luck, Sanhedrin, on stopping that. Verse 18. So they bring them in. And there's a response. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge. I, mean, I, I want this on my tombstone, verse 20. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Imagine for those of you who are Christians in this room, if you just lined up here and just started giving testimony of God's work in your life, any, any onlooker that was looking at again and again and again, there are hundreds of you just in this service. It'd be hard for anyone to, to not leave and only speak of what they have seen and heard Christ do. So here, Peter and John are receiving this threat. And you had to know this threat feels real. These are the powers that be. And they look back at them and say, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Meaning, we will only speak of what we have seen and heard. We, have only, we will only speak of Christ not only being crucified, but Christ rising from the grave. And his power is continuing on. And the church is going to be built up by people like us who are going to speak 
on what we have seen and what we have heard. And so they receive now a final threat, it says in, in verse 21. He said, these people would have heard Peter and John say this. And when they had further threatened them, like kind of that last, last hurrah of like, well, you, you better not. They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all who were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. In contrast to the apostles, what motivates these religious leaders is fear of people. But in contrast to the rulers, what what gives boldness to these apostles is actually the joy through the fear that they have in God in their lives. We can't do anything else but speak of what we have seen and heard. So they march on. Now at this point in the text, this doesn't seem that bad, right? These people get arrested. They're they're, probably housed overnight. Probably not that bad. You know, and then they're just asked some questions and, and they say some things and then they're told, well, you're not that smart, so don't do this again. They say, we're gonna do it again. They're like, well, okay, get out of here. It's the stage one of what will happen in the next chapters of these guys' lives. This persecution is slowly gonna build where it's no longer people are gonna ask them to go away. Now, now it's gonna build and build and build to where actually it's gonna cost these people their lives by just testifying about who Christ is, costing them their lives. And they know this. They know that this is happening. So you might, you might imagine, okay, just got away with something here. Now I've got Peter and John. We're going to go back to our posse. We're going to celebrate, you know, have a lot of Tostitos, watch some, you know, we're going to download all the movies from all the internet because we know it's happening fast. So let's celebrate this. And what we'll see later in the, in the, probably the next sermon is that when they go away, they actually gather together and they pray to God for more of this. They pray to God for more opportunity to proclaim his gospel. They're not wanting to hide. They're not praying like, Lord, take, take us out of here. You know, maybe go to Asia. It seems really nice there. They're pretty good. No, they want to proclaim the gospel. Here are these people who are brought in front of others and they can't not but speak of who God is. And this makes sense because God is building his church on spirit-empowered confessors. When they're filled by the spirit, they're talking about Christ. John Stott says that the Holy Spirit came to convict the world of guilt, but only in order that he might more effectively bear witness to Christ. The Holy Spirit comes not to put on a show, but to turn all these people to see what is really happening, Christ redeeming his bride. So in this Acts 4, we see Peter giving public testimony of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was crucified who was raised from the dead by God and who rules and reigns forever and ever, but he is not done, this Jesus. What he began then is what he continues today. Jesus is building his church right here, this church, on spirit-empowered confessors. May we respond in the same way that Peter does. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning encouraged by, their, by your word, astonished in just the goodness and the joy that these 
brothers saying about you. And we ask that in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our lives that you have given us, that you will give us the courage and the power. Lord, fill us with your spirit so that we can look at men and do nothing but proclaim your goodness to the ends of the earth. Father, we pray this in the name and in the power and under the authority of Jesus Christ. Amen.